Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago. Uh, my normal co-host, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings, uh, based down in San Diego, is not with us today or next week, uh, as he and his family enjoy spring break by doing a little international skiing. And I'm sure uh, be very interesting to hear what Rob has to say about all of that when he comes back in a few weeks. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, looking forward to sharing a little bit of time with you guys right now. We've got uh, uh, a great show today. Um, uh, we're featuring a uh, one of my favorite Grateful Dead shows that I saw live uh, from Hampton Coliseum in 1988. Uh, we've got some really interesting stories on what's going on in the world of cannabis and uh, whatever other personal uh, thoughts come out uh, during the course of our time here. But let's dive right in really quickly here with the Grateful Dead, March 27th, 1988 at the Hampton Coliseum. And this is what they opened with. It doesn't get much better than that. Uh, you're at a Grateful Dead show. This was night two of a three-night run uh, in March of 1988. Uh, my final year at uh, Hampton, I was there from 83 to 88. Uh, missed 89 when they came back as the Warlocks and laid down some two amazing shows. Uh, but this year, as all the other years that I was there, uh, was very memorable, uh, really a lot of fun. And, and they did it a little bit differently this time. The shows were Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Uh, kind of in an effort to see if they could help reduce the, the the crowd that was descending upon Hampton for these shows. Way more people showed up than had tickets to get in. Uh, and this was the Sunday night show. And I know the Fish fans all say never miss a Sunday show. Uh, but in this case, it certainly holds true uh, with the Grateful Dead as well, because this is just a, uh, a, a one-of-a-kind kind of show. And, and when they come out opening with Ico Ico, uh, you know it's going to be like that. And one of the things I like about this clip that we just played, this was an audience tape. And because of it, you can hear the entire crowd really responding to Jerry's, you know, call with the hey now, and then they all scream back hey now. And it's it's really, really loud, and it can be almost deafening when you're in the middle of it. Uh, but sometimes when you're listening to a professionally produced show, uh, they tend to fade out the audience noise in favor of uh, increasing the the music, which obviously, of course, is why you're buying it. But we've talked about this with dead shows sometimes. Uh, it's the moment. Last week, we were listening to the 86 uh, Hampton show when they broke out uh, Box of Rain for the first time, which I was also at. And that was incredibly loud. 83 St. Stephen in the Garden uh, was just uh, incredible. And when the dead came out with their In and Out of the Garden box set, and I ran straight to that uh, um, to that song to listen to it and kind of recapture that magic. The music is beautiful, but you can't hear the crowd at all. Uh, which is incredibly disappointing because that's, you know, that's the fun is the crowd recognizing what's going on and really reacting to it. And 
Haiko is always one of those songs that, that everybody likes. It, you know, everybody can participate in it. Everybody can sing back. The words are just uh, shaky enough that you can make up your own words and think that you're singing right along with them. Nobody cares. It's like a whole New Orleans type of thing. And uh, like I say, whenever the dead would play it, uh, it was always a great thing. And uh, my favorite place to see Ico was coming out of space, uh, as we saw, in, as I saw in 1982, the fall of 82 at uh, Syracuse Carey, on my second show ever. And maybe my best show ever with my good buddy, Mikey, and uh, my buddy Murph. And it was, uh, but that was great coming out of the space and just really taking over the show. But to come right out of the box with it uh, is a huge thing. And uh, always a lot of fun when uh, when they do that kind of thing for us. And uh, this, this was no exception, just really a great, great way to get going and uh, very much appreciated by the crowd. And that's what I really like is just, you know, like I say, hearing that crowd go wild and, and they did on this occasion. Uh, we talked last week about, you know, what a special place Hampton really was for everybody. And, and it, it's true. Um, Hampton is a special place. And uh, I can't tell you why. I can't tell you that it's because of where it's located, even though we've all joked about it being the, the capital of um, 7-Elevens. Uh, but for some reason, a lot of bands love playing there. We talked about last week about Fish and its Hampton Comes Alive album. And that's where they came after to, to start up again for Fish 3.0 in March of uh, 2009 um, and the dead every year in March, except uh, 89 when they came, I think in October or November uh, was for us was always uh, just something that was on the book. So by 88, I'd already graduated from law school. I was already working in my wife and I still took time off. Well, not my wife at the time, but soon to be. And uh, we flew out there uh, uh, with some other people we knew uh, since we're so close to DC this time, the good buddy, uh, Dan came down from DC with uh, uh, his girlfriend with the pantsuits, and uh, we all went to the show together. One of the shows together, I think that may have been the Saturday night show, but uh, as, as opposed to this one. But you know, as always, it's just such a good time, and uh, and this was no exception. Um, staying right with this show because uh, it, it's really so good that we could have just done the whole show just listening to it and. Uh, everybody just be so uh, freaking impressed by it. But here's another tune that they played. Uh, this came up uh, early in the first set. I think it was the third or fourth song. Uh, it is another Dillard cover ballad of a thin man. And uh, let's go ahead and listen to this clip for a second. Ballad of a Thin Man, Bob Dylan, 
um, from his Highway 61 revisited album that came out in 1965. Uh, it's a great, great tune, kind of a haunting uh, melody to it, if you will. And um, we all loved it because uh, I'm going to confess the first time, well, this was the first time I heard him play it at this show um, and wasn't really quite sure what it was. I knew I was already getting a little bit into Dylan uh, through other tunes that they had played, um, but I hadn't quite caught on to this one yet. Um, and uh, went back and, and wore out Highway 61 Revisited, listening to it over and over and over, uh, always saying I'd be ready the next time they played it. But they only played it one more time, the Dead. They they actually played it a few times in 87 with Dylan when they were touring with Dylan and the Dead, uh, usually during Dylan's set. I think four or five times they may have played it then. But then this was the, the first time they played it uh, as the Grateful Dead without Dylan around. And they only played it one more time. This was in March, I think, in April. And I... Off the top of my head, I don't recall the venue where they played it, but that was it. And then they retired it and uh, moved on to other Dylan tunes, all of which were always fun and well appreciated, uh, but not this one, uh, at least in terms of the amount of time that they played it. But it, it, it's a great tune. And in the context of this show that we were seeing, uh, it, it was really, really great because it, Bobby had, you know, had a regular routine of, of Dylan songs that he would play just about this part midway through the first set of most shows. And um, it could be uh, when I paint my masterpiece, it could be stuck inside a mobile with the Memphis blues again. Uh, there were a few others. Um, Desolation Row was one. Uh, but this night, he, he just slid this one in here and we all knew it was a Dylan tune. Um, but like I say, you know, I had to figure it out later and then just bringing more of Dylan and all of his stuff uh, into focus. Uh, for me, who at that point was really just discovering Dylan as well. Um, and I read a great story about this uh, Ballad of a Thin Man and the lyrics and, and what it all means um, and who the hell is Mr. Jones. Um, and Dylan gave a couple of different accounts, but the one I liked best was that Mr. Jones was a name he gave to a, uh, a news reporter uh, who was very otherwise well known, but he didn't want to put the guy's name out there. So he called him Mr. Jones and said this reporter would be at all of Dylan's shows and always asking him all sorts of questions what, is the, what does this song mean? Why do you use the lyrics in that song? Um, his, his take on everything under the sun. And he, he, this was his response to that, uh, uh, to write a song about uh, Mr. Jones. And, uh, you know, as I say, kind of give it this haunting melody, which I would say suggests that maybe it wasn't his most favorite time. I think Dylan is famously a little bit on the reticent side. Um, even when uh, President Jimmy Carter said that uh, Dylan uh, was his main man and all the reporters went flocking to Dylan to see what he thought about Carter and he didn't really know what to make of that either. There's a great, uh, there's a great uh, mention of that in, in early Doonesbury uh, comic strips from uh, back in, well, not that early, I guess, but relatively early from where we are today, but uh, mid to late 70s when Carter was running. And that's one of them when... Uh, Carter's, uh, Bob's hanging out with uh, the uh, Doonesbury rocker, Jimmy Thudpucker, and they get a call and Thudpucker yells out to uh, Dylan, hey, it's the White House. They want to know what the words in blown in the wind means. And Dylan's response is, I don't know, man, I was just trying to make the words rhyme. And, uh, you know, of course, that's uh, that's too oversimplifying what Bob Dylan did. And um, Highway 61 Revisited in, in its own right is, is a seminal album of rock and roll and certainly one of Dylan's best known and most beloved albums. It's basically a, a, a who's who of every uh, well-known hit from that period of time by Bob Dylan. And uh, as always, I would encourage listeners to go out and check out Dylan in general, but check out this album, check out a lot of his live stuff, check out him doing this tune. 
and uh, she can, you know, kind of put up with his uh, raspy voice as it is. Um, but yeah, listen, Grateful Dead coming out and playing that. We were all just as happy as could be and uh, really enjoyed it. And it, it really kept the set going. The Dead, as, as they would typically do after that, Ico Ico, uh, broke onto something a little more mon- mundane like Little Red Rooster, uh, which which tends to let the air out of the building until we get about two-thirds of the way through the song. And uh, Jerry and Bobby are just wailing away on the guitars. And we're like, oh, yeah, there's there's some good stuff here. Um, and Into Stagger Lee, which is always one of my favorites. And then Ballad of a Thin Man just really brought the crowd uh, right back to where they wanted us to be. Um, Cumberland Blues, Me and My Uncle, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful to lay me down, which um, unfortunately I have not pulled today uh, because there's so many other good tunes from this show. Uh, but you can find this on archive.org. And if you go there, uh, you might even want to just go straight to the To Lay Me Down and listen to the whole thing from start to finish. It's it's, it's really beautiful. And, uh, you know, Jerry brings tears to your eyes. And then closing out the set with Let It Grow, always a great second set closer. Um, a lot of fun. We'd all be sitting, secretly wishing that they would just play the whole weather report suite. Instead, we just get the Let It Grow segment. But that was the story of our lives based on when we started seeing the Grateful Dead. Uh, and we were very happy to have that. And it uh, uh, was always a very upbeat and energetic way uh, to end a set uh, for the Grateful Dead. And so um, with that, we will veer off into some marijuana news for a minute and then uh, come back because all the other songs that I have pulled today do come from the second set. And uh, we can kind of listen to them in that order then. Um, the last few weeks, you know, the stories we've been reporting on, it's, it's felt like it's been a ping pong ball back and forth of good news, bad news, good news, bad news. And this week is going to be no different. Um, and it always bums me out because I hate to be reporting the bad news. But it's out there and, and we need to know about it because these are the things uh, that we just have to really understand and recognize that they exist, uh, that these are issues that notwithstanding our beliefs, well, we have social equity programs, so all the societal and racial racial issues related to marijuana have now been resolved. None of that's true. Um, First of all, we would actually need a working and successful social equity program somewhere uh, to be able to make that assessment. And to date, no state, including Illinois, has been able to pull that off. Uh, Maybe in the future we'll get there, but as of right now, it hasn't happened. Uh, much to everybody's disappointment, certainly here in Illinois. Uh, it's been the hallmark of the program, and everybody likes to brag about it. But in reality, uh, it hasn't done a lot for anybody. Um, we'll see as we go forward here and some new dispensaries get to open. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, as an attorney who's been very involved in this industry here in Illinois since its inception, I have never been impressed with this with the state's view of social equity. We complained about their initial program. Nobody was interested in hearing what we had to say. And three years later, after the uh, licenses were all supposed to be awarded, uh, we all feel a little bit validated in the sense that the program has failed in ways that were predictable even to idiots like us way back when. But social equity remains an issue. And and this story, uh, which either unfortunately or not surprising, depending on how you look at it, is out of the state of Tennessee. And very recently, a couple, Bianca Claiborne and Deontay Williams, were pulled over by the Tennessee Highway Patrol. Why were they pulled over? Oh my, for tinted car windows and driving in the left lane on the interstate without passing as they were trying to make their way home uh, in Georgia, trying to make their way from their home in Georgia to a family funeral in Chicago. Um, Okay, so let's just stop right there. You're going to really, you're on the highway and you decide that's where you have to pull somebody over for tinted windows. Uh, You know, that's just insane. And not passing in the left lane. Look, I'm a guy who drives a lot. 
certainly between St. Louis and Chicago, and nothing, nothing gets me more upset than a guy parked in the left lane who's just not moving um, and, and tying up traffic. But the idea of pulling somebody over for that, um, you know, and, and subjecting them to everything just seems to be overkill. And so without even knowing anything more, you know, we have to start this by suggesting that, unfortunately, these people committed the crime of uh, DWB, driving while black, which um, is way more common than any of us would like to think it is or feel comfortable knowing that it is. But, you know, this can only get worse for them, right? So a search of the car turned up five grams of marijuana, five grams. That's a little bit more than an eighth, a lot less than a quarter in the state, in the city of Chicago. Uh, it's a citation. It's not even criminal anymore. Uh, it would be nothing more than a citation. And in a lot of states, it's like that. But this was Tennessee. And this was a black couple with black children in their car. And so uh, Mr. Williams was arrested. Miss Claiborne was cited and released with the couple's five children. Uh, and according to the Tennessee Highway Patrol, at that point in time when they left, the children were in their mother's custody. However, less than six hours later, the Tennessee Department of Children's Services forcibly took the children from Claiborne as she waited to bond Williams out. So she went down to the uh, jail uh, to get her partner out with her children because she was traveling and had nowhere else to put them. And while she was there, some nice person from the Tennessee Department of Children's Services came walking over and said, we're taking your kids because you're not a good parent. And they took the kids. Uh, the family has, at the time of this article, the family had been out their children for 30 days uh, just to uh, really make things even worse. Their youngest child uh, is a breastfeeding infant and has now been away from uh, mom for uh, 30 days. Uh, as the husband of a lactation consultant, I can tell you that's not a good thing uh, on many, many levels. And, you know, shame on Tennessee uh, for doing this. In order to get her children back, Ms. Claiborne is going to be required to submit to a hair follicle test uh, where they literally pull your hair out and then by tracing uh, back in the genes or whatever they look for in the, in the hair, uh, they can they can find um, uh, drug usage up to several months back. So in this instance, the state said that when they did the follicle test on both Claiborne and Williams, when they were first tested for THC, Claiborne tested negative, Williams tested positive. Then they were asked to submit to the rapid hair follicle test. test. And according to the Tennessee uh, Highway Patrol, both tested positive for meth, oxycodone, and fentanyl. Uh, both parents are now using these drugs, and a court administrator has already said uh, that the use of those hair follicle tests will be inadmissible in court. Uh, and that they are known specifically for producing false positives. Notwithstanding this, the Tennessee Department of Children's Services used those results of the rapid test in a court filing on the basis of accusing Claiborne and Williams of severe child abuse and claimed that the children, seven, five, three, two, and four months, said that their father took them on drug deals. It didn't matter. The, they, they took the kids, and then, you know, once again, craziness, they split them up into three different foster homes. Uh, they now were able to get them into a... Uh, uh, the home of a Nashville area relative uh, who agreed to serve as a foster for the home for the family. At the hearing, ironically, or interestingly, I guess, over a half dozen of uh, Tennessee Department of Children's Services officials showed up uh, to be present and uh, uh, to make an appearance there. Um, 
Theta Murphy, who's the executive director of No Exceptions Prison Collective, uh, noted that the DCS, the uh, Tennessee DCS itself had been the subject of intense public scrutiny regarding its treatment of children. She said that uh, the DCS has been keeping children in offices and hallways, but has the nerve to come in and say these children are in danger based on a stop for tinted windows. They silence anyone who has the nerve to call out the state of Tennessee has no respect for black families. The state of Tennessee has no love for black children. I'm here to tell you that, baby. It's 2023, not 1823. We're going to fight for our children and we're going to win. Unfortunately, the children have not yet been returned. Um, And yes, while there is the the presence of the hair follicle tests uh, pointing to some other drugs, this is all a result of pulling black people over for having tinted windows uh, and then arresting them and bringing them in for five grams of marijuana. Um, this isn't the way the world should be working. Uh, last week, I you know, joked about how when I was going into the salt shed to see Phil Lesh and friends, some overactive security guard uh, decided that he was going to make an example of me and wound up taking my marijuana away from me. That's nothing. That's just an inconvenience and, quite frankly, uh, uh, an aggravation because when you go to a dead show, you would hope that the people who are working there uh, would be understanding of what's going on and not use it as an excuse to... Uh, try to give themselves bona fides for maybe a police career or something like that because they know how to sniff out the drugs. But what's happened here uh, to this family is in a whole nother level. This is just systematic racism. uh, And unfortunately, uh, marijuana is a bootstrap that the Tennessee Highway Patrol uses uh, all too frequently in these types of situations. Uh, And although I do not have any statistics available to me, I'm Uh, very happy to take any bet that it happens to black families a lot more uh, than it happens to white families. So, you know, when we get to the point where where people are so concerned uh, about five grams of marijuana and driving with tinted windows that they have to take a family's children away, uh, we're not in a good place. And I don't think that's where anybody uh, wants to see us right now. Um, One other story uh, that I just want to touch on right away here that's interesting and sometimes um, makes you have uh, very interesting opinions on things um, is that the Justice Department has said they filed a brief in a lawsuit that's been filed by some guys in Florida objecting to the fact that in order to get a state marijuana license, you have to uh, give up and forego uh, any firearms that you have because under federal law, you can't have firearms uh, around or present or part of any kind of a Schedule One transaction, which marijuana is. And the feds have long said that anyone who gets a state license uh, loses or forfeits their FOIA rights, or their FOIA card and their gun rights uh, for that very reason. Um, in fact, the state of Illinois in its initial medical marijuana bill uh, had a rule in there that specifically said that anyone with a license could not have a FOIA and had to give it up or relinquish their weapons. Uh, ultimately, that clause was taken out. Here's my spin on this, and then we'll get back to the story here in a second. And that is, this is marijuana. That's guns. When you bring the gun issue into marijuana, you're distracting away from the true issue of marijuana and you're giving people who might not otherwise be against marijuana uh, a a little more upset because anything that takes away guns for some people is an automatic disqualifier. And I'm not here to argue the merits of that. I'm just here to say that I would prefer, and I think most of us would prefer, if the two issues are kept separate and uh, don't necessarily have to fall in on one another um, for, for purposes of what they're trying to do here. Uh, but something is required because the federal courts themselves are split on this situation and what can and cannot be done. But I think it's exceptional that the Justice Department has stepped in and they've actually taken a position on it, talking about wide-ranging consequences um, 
and, and what I don't understand is that the plaintiffs contend um, that there's not an, uh, the, the Justice Department came in and argued um, that any restrictions must be consistent with the historical context of the Second Amendment's original 1791 ratification, although I highly doubt anyone was talking about marijuana or cannabis back then. Um, so the plaintiffs in this lawsuit, the guys from Florida contend there's not an adequate uh, historical analog that justifies pre preventing state registered medical marijuana patients, in this case, the patients from possessing guns. Uh, the DOJ disputes that point, drawing a parallel between laws against firearm possession by people who are intoxicated with from alcohol. That is a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating thing for the Justice Department to say, because nowhere has the Justice Department pushed to say that anyone who drinks alcohol should not be able to own a gun or that anybody who owns a liquor store should not be able to own a gun. This only applies with marijuana. Why? More people get drunk, more people are prone to violence. There's liquor stores and bars all over the city, all over everywhere, and they're free to do it. But yet we get to this issue, and all of a sudden with marijuana, it's as though there's some special thing. And yes, I, I understand the connection to a Schedule One controlled substance. Change the damn law. This isn't rocket science, guys. You know, I, I am not a, a pro-gun person. I am very much an anti-gun person. But I say that only because in this instance, this is not the right way to be doing this. People who want to get involved in the marijuana industry should not be punished. If somebody uses their gun in an improper or illegal manner, that's fine. Then the laws of that state or the feds, if they think it's appropriate, can step in and they can address that. But when these issues are linked in this way, um, it, it makes me very uncomfortable. Uh, and it, 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 even though it looks like the government may be on our side, I'm not so sure that they are. If for no other reason, just because of the, we see the, the, the total disparate treatment between the way they view alcohol and the way that they use uh, marijuana. And in fact, when the DOJ cited that, the whole point that they were trying to make is, is that there is some historical precedence for people who are intoxicated uh, being told uh, that they may not be able to have firearms. But that's not today's law. That may have been a law back then, but we don't have any law in the books today that says that. And so, you know, the DOJ is just totally disingenuous here. And, you know, although, like I say, I'm an, I'm an anti-gun guy, and especially handguns, I have a hard time buying into the government's argument on that one. Uh, if they want to go after handguns, I'm all for it, and, and I would support that. Uh, but I don't support it being done within the context of marijuana laws, saying that the fact of marijuana licensure makes you ineligible uh, for a federal firearms license and permit. Um, and I think they're going to have to go back to the drawing board on that one and, and figure out a slightly better way to handle it. So that's what I got for you right now in the first round of marijuana news. Um, you know, not, not exactly the greatest, certainly not the first story. The second story maybe depends on your politics a little bit more. Um, but it is pretty frustrating no matter what. Um, but not to worry because in a few minutes here, I've got some wonderful, much more positive uh, marijuana stories that we're going to dive into that kind of renew our faith just a little bit and let us know that uh, everything's going to be all right. But let's turn back to Hampton Coliseum for a minute here um, and uh, the, the amazing concert that we got to see this night uh, back in March of 1988. And the first set was already legendary because they had the strong Ico opening, uh, played solid tunes, threw in one of only two times ever, Ballad of a Thin Man, 
a beautiful to lay me down in the strong, let it grow to end. What could they do in set two? Well, you never, you never ask that question because you know exactly what they can do in, in set two. Uh, and what we're going to do here right now is listen to the very beginning of set two from that show. And uh, we're starting it a little before the first song so that you can hear Jerry noodling around. And we'll come back and talk about that in a minute. Dan? Yeah, wow, That's, uh, that should be the reaction to that. Here we are sitting around waiting for them to come and start up the second set. Uh, they get onto the stage, and as they're prone to do, they start noodling around for a minute. And before you know it, uh, Jerry's deep into Miles Davis's So What. Um, we've talked about this before, too. I, I mentioned it because when I saw Phil and Friends at the Cap, uh, the Capitol Theater in Port Chester a couple of years ago, again with my good buddy Mikey, um, they came out the first night and out of an amazing uh, low spark of high-heeled boys went into So What, uh, which was wonderful because they, they actually played a good chunk of the tune. Um, and it is from Miles Davis's album, Kind of Blue, from 1959. Um, Jerry and David Grisman have it on an album, I believe, actually called So What, and they play the entire tune there as well. Uh, it's a wonderful number. Um, you know, and most of the people sitting in uh, Hampton Coliseum, and I'm going to throw myself right in there because this was probably the first time I heard it, did not know that it necessarily was so what or that it was uh, a Miles Davis song as opposed to just something that the dead were noodling with. Although most of us knew well enough that if Jerry was playing something and it sounded anything like a song, it probably was something that had just crept into his mind for a minute. Um, when we kind of put the pieces together and realized what it was and so what has been a, uh, a favorite ever since. And uh, that's kind of like, I think, Jerry, you know, being in his little playful mode, maybe, and uh, a mode that he seemed to get in much more frequently than, than other places when he played at Hampton. Um, and I think they always just had a good time there. And uh, it was a great crowd. Uh, the Deadheads used to call Hampton Coliseum the mothership. And we'd all gather there in March to kind of, you know, commence the beginning of spring tour and, uh, you know, see what new tunes the boys were playing. How did they sound? Who could we see that we hadn't seen since the year before? Um, but, uh, you know, Jerry's up there and this is what he's doing. And, and, and we were loving every minute of it. And then we had to keep playing through the noise there for a minute because what do they do? They turn around and they open the second set with Sugar Magnolia. And that's, that's almost kind of like a New Year's Eve move for them. They, they do it periodically from time to time throughout um, open up a second set with a sugar magnolia. And, you know, for me, there's, there's almost no better tune that if you had to describe one, pick one tune that best describes, excuse me, that best describes the Grateful Dead, what would it be? And I, I, it's, it's hard to imagine a tune other than sugar magnolia, right? Which tells the story of a, of a musician and his girlfriend and 
they're traveling from one place to the next and they get in and out of trouble and they're helping each other out. It's like the story of every deadhead in the world. And um, it, it's such a great song and it, it's always so upbeat and so well played. And I love it at the end of a show because n- nobody likes the end of a show. You want it to keep going forever. Um, but at least if it's Sugar Magnolia, you know you're getting a uh, as good an ending to a show as you could get. But when they start a set with it, um, that automatically, you know, starts conjuring all of the various possibilities of where they might go next, what they might do after that. And uh, the boys did not let down here um, as they're prone to do in these types of situations, especially more in second sets. I think right the first set opener, Echo kind of fell into Little Red Rooster. Uh, Sugar Magnolia did not suffer the same fate as it rolls directly uh, into a Scarlet Fire. Um, and we, we say this about every Scarlet Fire, so who am I kidding? But this is certainly one of the better Scarlet Fires I heard throughout the years. And uh, at that point, when you're when you're right in the middle of Scarlet and, you know, you're getting close to the uh, transition into what will be an amazing fire, um, you know, you, you, it really does transport you right out of the uh, – right out of the auditorium. And it, it's, it's not a stage two jam. It's more like a stage seven or eight or nine jam where it's almost an out-of-body experience. And you're sitting there listening to this amazing music coming down uh, and the dead are playing a set that three songs into it is already one for the books. Uh, and then what do they do? What they always did at that time, uh, unestimated eyes. Um, and so if you think, well, here, we, we've got, uh, I've got the transition from estimated into eyes just because it is one of my all-time favorite dead transitions that one generally speaking this particular one at this show is really good uh, but it was always fun when they pulled that one off as well so let's let's listen to that for a second Estimated Eyes was was such a regular um, in the 80s. Uh, China Rider Estimated Eyes, Scarlet Fire Estimated Eyes, Every Now and Then Help Slip Frank Estimated Eyes. So, so think about this as a, as a second set to start. You got Sugar Magnolia, Scarlet Begonias, Fire on the Mountain, Estimated Prophet Eyes of the World. That's like an A-plus set list. And then to be doing it in, Col- in the Hampton Coliseum notches it up even more. And then they actually listen to them doing it and hear how amazingly well they play it. Really, we would think at that moment... Where else would I rather be on earth right now than here in the Hampton Coliseum listening to this music? And who are all these other people that are milling about out there, even right here in in Hampton, Virginia, who aren't inside, who didn't make an effort to come to see this show and be here at at, at this moment? And, you know, Fish fans, I know you can relate. There's there's stretches where where those guys uh, are really just, you know, dropping one good song after another to the point where, uh, you know, you got to pinch yourself a few times because it's hard to believe, um, you know, 
what you're actually catching. And, and this was one of those moments. And, you know, it, it, it would always validate all the effort that we would make to get ourselves out to Hampton, Virginia, to, to find one of the two uh, Best Westerns or Red Roof Inn or whatever it was that we would stay at out there, you know, get everything all set up for a three-day run. And then when it was over, pack up and take off and, you know, be ready to come back the following year. And it's just it's always a great place. And, you know, to, to, so to, to hear a show like that was, you know, to really just, you know, kind of give yourself a high five and hugs to everybody around you who made it into the show. Cause this was one of those nights when you really wanted to be there, right? We all had nights where uh, we said, well, it's a good show, but you know, it didn't really knock my socks off. This one knocked everything off and uh, just left us all wanting for more, which we would get the next night, but uh, we still have a few more tunes to go with this one. Uh, we will get to, but I, I want to, Switch back to marijuana, and this time we are going to look at a series of state actions that, or, or federal actions, both, that give us renewed hope that, you know, notwithstanding what some states are doing with marijuana, uh, either making it impossible to legalize it or to be able to smoke it, or as we saw with Tennessee, taking advantage of people who do use it as a justification to mess around with their lives in other areas where the state has no business sticking its nose. Um, but how about this? Senator Steve Daines from Montana, a Republican, is now on record saying that he wants to unleash, unleash an army of banking lobbyists on Capitol Hill to help pass a marijuana banking bill. Okay, look, this is big. We've talked about this banking bill a lot on this show, and they've tried many different ways to get it passed addending it to the Military Spending Act or to other budget things. or And Rob and I had talked about the pros and cons of that, um, as well as, uh, you know, kind of giving our thoughts as to whether we thought this ever has any chance of passing. And we've kind of universally come to the conclusion that at least not right now, given the current political climate as it exists in the Senate, the House doesn't seem to be bothered by that. Um, but the Senate is where the Safe Banking Act has gone to die over and over again. Um, and not straight party lines, but close enough party lines that uh, it, it's upsetting. So to have a GOP senator step up to the plate and say, I'm going to work with Chuck Schumer, I want to get this Safe Banking Act passed, is kind of big, in my opinion. Um, and, and what he had to say, I think, is very important, right? He says, this is a lot about educating folks on an issue. This is not about whether you support legalization or not. This is not some kind of proxy vote for endorsing federal legalization of marijuana, the senator said. It's totally unrelated. What this is about is solving a problem that's facing our financial service businesses, our legal cannabis businesses, and other ancillary industries from plumbers to brokers. And he's absolutely right. Um, he's absolutely right about that. To, to say that uh, we want to provide banking for this industry doesn't necessarily mean that, that you yourself want to smoke cannabis or even that you necessarily support cannabis. But we all have to accept the fact that cannabis is here, uh, and especially in states like Montana and the other 40 or however many that now have medical and or adult use laws in place. Uh, and every one of those businesses is either still running cash or some now have been able to get into ATMs, uh, but at, 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 a, at a typically a steep cost uh, to the dispensary that, that, that's using the ATMs. Uh, and that's no way to run an industry, any kind of an industry. We don't do it that way with alcohol. Why should we do it that way with marijuana? And people all scream schedule one and we all scream schedule one is stupid. It, uh, the whole, whole Controlled Substances Act is stupid. But that's that's another story for another day. And we may talk about that one day because it's such a politicalization uh, by Richard Nixon and his cronies in response to what he saw as the the, the teenage and early 20s threats of uh, kids who were going to upset the American way of life. And, oh, my God, Jade Fonda went to North Korea. So take their marijuana away and don't just take it away. 
but put it on a place and under federal law where we will ruin lives over it. Um, and people who uh, otherwise uh, just like to get high, just like to smoke, uh, you know, now we're going to say, if you do it, you face the full wrath of the law and the strongest penalties available. Um, so, you know, that's all nonsense, but there's no reason why there isn't banking and there's no reason why states can't decide on their own, like just like they can decide if they want marijuana, whether or not they want the banks in their states to be able to do business uh, with those marijuana businesses. And I think that if asked, they would almost universally say yes. And why? Because if marijuana is here, again, it makes no sense not to have banking. You have a building that a crook says, hmm, this building has marijuana and cash. Hmm, that's worth my time, maybe. Uh, and even with all the new security systems that are required, it doesn't mean that people aren't trying. It doesn't mean that dispensaries don't have to incur all the costs of maintaining that. And what about when it's time to take all their cash to the bank? You know, we could do an entire hour on all the different ways that businesses out there try to come up with plans to get their cash to a bank uh, safely and without having to worry about whether or not their employees who are transferring the money um, are, are, are going to be at any risk because people can start figuring out when you're when you're moving your money. So we, we really still have to see something happen about this, um, right? It's about safety and trying to reduce crime that's exploding in our communities as a result of too much cash out there. Now, I will say that Dane goes a little bit out of his way to try to emphasize the not cannabis part. Um, and I get that, you know, you, you can't get 100% of anybody. But again, we don't have, if, if senators vote in favor of the uh, Safe Banking Act, I could care less whether they ultimately support the legalization of marijuana on the federal level. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. In the meantime, uh, the industry will finally have banking. And that's something that's long overdue uh, and something that this industry desperately needs. How about this? New York has introduced a bill to require health insurance coverage of medical marijuana and has cleared the Assembly Committee uh, and can uh, uh, now heads to the State Ways and Means Committee before advancing to the uh, the floor of the New York State Legislature, uh, and the measure would amend the state statute to define cannabis as a prescription drug, a covered drug, a health care service for health insurance purposes. Medical marijuana would need to be covered by public insurance entities, regardless of federal financial participation in their services. Uh, state Medicaid, Child Health Plus, Workers' Compensation, and EPIC programs would be required to treat cannabis from certain certified dispensaries the same as other conventional pharmaceuticals for purposes of coverage. Now, private health insurers, uh, on the other hand, wouldn't be forced to provide coverage for medical marijuana, but the bill would allow them to do so if they wanted. And I don't see why they wouldn't. They insure bars and uh, uh, stores that sell alcohol. So why not do it for marijuana? Um, and, and we think that uh, you know, there, there's really no reason not to. But even more importantly, is that the bill then goes on to say that for thousands of patients, medical marijuana is a safer and more effective medication than other drugs, especially opioids. While it can be prohibitively expensive for patients, especially in the absence of insurance coverage, it may often be less expensive than what their insurance coverage pays for other medications. Cost is the primary barrier to patient access in New York's medical marijuana program. Good for the state of New York for stepping up and seeing that, and good for the state of New York for doing something about it and actually putting the dots together. It is medical. It is used for medical purposes. There's doctors out there that use it for that very purpose. There's healthcare providers everywhere that use it for that very purpose. And if medical insurers don't want to cover it, you know, there was a time when they didn't want to cover uh, psychotropic drugs for people with depression or anxiety or things like that. 
uh, until they realized that uh, by not insuring those people, then those people would ultimately, not always, but in some instances, go out and do harm to themselves or to others. And the insurance costs were so much greater. So finally, they said, sure, uh, we'll insure them too. And they should. Uh, there's no reason not to insure uh, marijuana people, uh, people who smoke marijuana and people who use marijuana. Um, there is no medical reason to do it. And uh, the fact that the New York uh, State Assembly recognizes that and is trying to pass this bill, I see as a, uh, a tremendous win. And here's another one from, from the good old state of Texas, right? Just when you think that the state of Texas and Governor Abbott and their crazy lieutenant governor down there, I don't remember his name on purpose, but he's a nut job. Texas lawmakers approved a bill that would allow doctors to recommend medical marijuana to patients if they have a condition causing chronic pain that would otherwise be treated with prescription opioids. Again, sponsored by a Republican, Stephanie Click, who said this would also replace the THC cap that the House Public Health Committee, uh, excuse me, that was first established under the state's existing limited medical cannabis law. Um, and so they would now be able to go from 1% up to 5% of THC content in their product. Uh, and that they, it, it, another uh, uh, condition that they've added that will allow patients uh, to qualify for low THC marijuana products and describe it as a condition that, uh, oh, excuse me, the, the bill further stipulates that the regulators at the Department of State Health at State Health Services can approve through rulemaking additional debilitating medical conditions to qualify patients for the cannabis program. Uh, the head of Texas Normal, Jax James, told Marijuana Moment, thank you to Marijuana Moment for all of the stories we're using of theirs today, uh, that advocates feel confident the expansion bill would be approved on the House floor after clearing the committee. Texas, folks, Texas, which can never seem to get anything right about anything, uh, is moving in the right direction on this one. And of course they are because it's the smart, sensible thing to do. If you have a patient uh, who can use marijuana and get sufficient treatment of pain uh, such that they don't need to turn to standard opioids for that type of relief is a huge win for everybody, for them, for their doctors, for their families, for society. Um, it, it, it just makes such a huge difference to be able to go from a addictive substance to a non-addictive substance that's safer and can provide much of the same relief that you can get from an opioid. And so Good for Texas uh, for recognizing that and allowing doctors the ability, uh, although still on a fairly low level of only a 5% THC content, but hey, we'll take whatever we can get, uh, get a foot in the door and use that uh, to be able to move forward and hopefully uh, see bigger things in Texas down the road, like a full adult use program uh, with a full range of products um, that people can get. One last story just to throw in here, um, and then we're going to go back and finish up our, our fun at uh, Hampton Coliseum. Uh, there's another story I saw which says that uh, during dry January in this year, 20% of the people who participated in that, meaning that they gave up drinking alcohol for the month of January, say that they are using cannabis as an alternative, uh, a survey out there finds. Um, this is amazing. 21% said they're opting for, cannab for cannabis and CBD products uh, in, in place of alcohol. And it turns out that marijuana and cannabinoids, cannabinoids are the most common alternative uh, with people saying uh, that for this month, uh, this is as opposed to other options for non-alcoholic beverages, 20% soda and seltzer, 20% and kombucha at 6%. Young people are most likely to say they're consuming cannabis over alcohol. We do not condone underage marijuana use. But kids that age, if they're not smoking, they're going to be drinking. We'd rather have them smoke 
then drink. If they're going to break the rules, if they're going to try and, you know, do their exploring at that age, like we all did when we were that age, uh, if we can get the kids to smoke marijuana instead of drinking alcohol, it is a much, much better thing. We've gone into that. We won't go into all of it today, but it's, it's, it's an easy research subject on Google as to which is more dangerous. Um, so here's what the survey says. As more states move to legalize marijuana, more people are choosing to use cannabis over alcohol uh, and also using it over other certain prescription drugs like opioids. Most Americans say they believe cannabis is safer than alcohol and tobacco. A separate poll last year found that more Americans now openly admit that they smoke marijuana or eat cannabis-infused edibles than say they've smoked cigarettes in the past week at the time that they're polled. And more than twice as many Americans think that marijuana has a positive impact on its consumers and society at large than they say the same about alcohol, according to that poll. People aren't stupid. And now that we've had marijuana out in the public uh, and, and you don't just have to hide it at home anymore, People are seeing that and more people are trying it and people who would otherwise not want to break the law. And what are we finding? Hey, we like alcohol less. We like marijuana more. We'd rather stay with the marijuana. It makes us feel better. It's not chewing up my liver. It's not destroying my brain. It doesn't make me aggressive. It doesn't any of those things. We've talked about all the statistics. And uh, once again, here's just another survey that says, uh, what we've all known all along, that marijuana uh, is not only a good substitute for things like alcohol and tobacco, but in many instances, it can become a preferred substitute. And that's nothing but good for society as a whole, uh, if we can get to the point where we can do that. Uh, but enough preaching for today. Everybody's entitled to feel their own ways about marijuana. That's just my thoughts on it. Um, and, you know, I could be wrong. Although, as I like to tell my kids, I never am. <laughs> um, back to our Grateful Dead show. So we after the eyes of the world, they jump into drums in space. Uh, then we get it going down the road feeling bad, which, again, anytime the boys want to take the time to throw in a going down the road feeling bad and really jam out on it, that's just a wonderful thing. It's a great tune, a uh, tune that's been around uh, forever, and the dead really kind of co-opted it and made it their own. And it's a great tune. It's a great way to come out of space uh, right into I Need a Miracle, uh, giving Bobby a chance to get up there and roar a little bit. Um, and then uh, after I Need a Miracle, the dead did, uh, the dead did this. They just drop in a Dear Mr. Fantasy. Now, by this point, it had, it had uh, well established its way into the uh, Grateful Dead's repertoire, and it would come out uh, with with some level of frequency. But it was always a crowd pleaser, as, as much as it was uh, the first time they broke that out back in 1984 at Red Rocks. And uh, what a great song. Traffic is the perfect band, in my opinion, for the Grateful Dead to cover, because they kind of play this kind of low 
fast-paced, low, almost low energy, but not quite uh, brand of rock and roll with, you know, some really trippy lyrics and uh, uh, some great images. When I see Phil with Warren, the thing that gets me most excited is I know I'm almost guaranteed a low spark of high-heeled boys, and we just got one this last run they did at the Salt Shed here in Chicago a couple of weeks ago. And Dear Mr. Fantasy is is such a great song and, and stayed in their repertoire right up until the time that Brent died. Uh, and as you can hear from this one, Brent is is, is always the the leader. And although I like the, the Jerry verses and the Jerry says, uh, play us a tune, something to keep us all happy. And everybody else says something to make us all happy. And I like Jerry's attitude on that a little bit more, but I can't knock any of the other singers because they're just singing the lyrics. But uh, it, it's always fun. It always gets a great reaction from the crowd uh, as it did here. And um, sorry that they, sorry that they weren't able to keep playing it. Um, but we, we get it. And like I said, we also, we also got that with, with Phil and Warren the first night at the salt shed, the low spark was the second night, but it it is, it's a lot of fun. And and I always enjoy it, uh, when I get to hear some traffic covers by grateful dead related, uh, people. Um, we are coming to the end of today's episode, uh, covered a lot of material on the marijuana side, um, which can show both the good and the bad of the way this country is reacting to uh, the ever-growing presence of legal weed and and uh, it becoming uh, very soon, I hope, pretty much just a regular part um, of everybody's lifestyle, whether it's for relaxation at home or uh, out at a consumption lounge and maybe soon enough in other public places uh, where, where people will be able to actually enjoy it um, and not have to always be looking over their shoulder and worrying about guys who would rather be police officers uh, or worrying about uh, troopers down in the state of Tennessee uh, who have absolutely nothing better to do with their time than harass a black black family over an amount of marijuana so insignificant uh, that they should really be ashamed of themselves. Um, But let's leave on a bright note and on an upbeat note and take uh, recognition of the fact that we we saw states, especially states that might not, not always be the ones we would expect or uh, even senators who we wouldn't be expect on helping lead the way on some uh, changing issues, which just demonstrates that despite the efforts by uh, some law enforcement and other groups, marijuana is normalizing in this country. It is becoming uh, entrenched in this country. And the reason why that's good is because it's gotten to the point where I think it, it's it's no longer possible for any one politician or group of politicians to think that they can somehow stuff this genie back in a bottle uh, and take it away from us. Um, it, it's here to stay uh, in one form or another, and hopefully it will always be a form that is respectful to the uh, operators in the industry, primarily by giving them full business recognition, full business rights, banking services, uh, get rid of 280E, or at least uh, take marijuana off its list of applicable substances, and allowing this industry to really grow like any other industry would grow. No other industry in this country has these kind of shackles um, uh, that's a consumer product, and it, it just doesn't seem right. And uh, you know that that's always our theme here. Uh, we're big supporters of normal. We're big supporters of all the groups uh, that have consistently been pushing uh, for the legalization and normalization of marijuana use in this country. Um, we will be back next week. Rob is still on vacation, uh, but we'll have another fun Grateful Dead show uh, to spin for you. Uh, always more uh, fun news coming out of the marijuana industry. Uh, all sorts of uh, spring tours going on for bands that we will be uh, uh, checking in on and commenting on and uh, hope that you will take time to join us then as well. I'm going to leave you today um, with the song that any deadhead worth his or her salt knew 
was going to end the second set. Um, and this is this is kind of fun the first time you hear it do it, and it's it's fun anytime you hear them do it. But when they come out and they open a set with Sugar Mag, uh, they save the Sunshine Daydream uh, tag along for the end of the set. And this show is no different, and they did not disappoint. So as we leave now, uh, please enjoy the uh, Sunshine Daydream portion of the Sugar Magnolia end of show uh, formula for the Grateful Dead with Bobby uh, really spilling his guts and doing everything he can to send everybody home with a smile. And he did it. Thanks, folks. We'll talk to you next week. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.